pretty something episode here. You ever get the feeling someone's creeping over your shoulder? <clears throat> How's it going, Ben? Are you out there? I don't hear you yet, Ben. Looks like Ben's having a moment. How's it going out there in the world today, folks? Anything good happening? How is everybody's St. Patrick's Day excitement? Multiple people are typing in there. Snowy and blowy, yeah. I guess you guys have been having some more snow up there, huh? That is so depressing. And I feel really badly for you. Beautiful in Northwest Florida. No, I don't want any more snow. 15 feet so far this year. There you go. Where do you put it all? We come from a pretty snowy place, and uh, but 15 feet seems like a lot. What's a severe solar spill? That sounds either like a joke or something serious. It's either a joke. It might be a Florida Florida person joke. Floridian. Uh, How's my sound working? Can you hear me okay? Uh, beautiful, Then Never heard it better. So um, anyway, welcome. So now Vin's online here. So we're going to pick up maybe with a little bit more music theory-ish type stuff here. But uh, first of all, Vin, you signed up. I did. For the course. I did. Have you checked any of it out? I haven't, I haven't gotten into it much yet. I just sort of poked around a little bit. Um, I need a, sort of a chunk of time where I can sit and watch. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta, um, yeah. Each each lesson is about half an hour to forty five minutes long, so you gotta like, you should just find one hour blocks, yeah. and then no, some of it I'm sure. Yeah, for me it's like easy, but I'm sure if you're watching it, there's gonna be spots where you're gonna wanna like rewind and like, wait, what was that? Let me try that again, because um, it gets pretty gets pretty interesting there. Uh, as we start yeah. to get into chords and chord progressions in month one. Yeah, it'd be cool. How think, about others? You know, I would encourage everybody. I mean, I, I am, like I said last week, I think I'm into the community aspect. There's, there could be like a little sort of group of people sort of trying their hand at composing and throwing stuff out there. And I think that kind of activity is good all around, you know? Absolutely. I've heard the Facebook group link doesn't quite work yet. So I got to get in there and figure that out. Um, but, uh, but that'll be happening here today. Um, have you tried the Facebook private group yet, Vin? I haven't yet, not yet. No. Uh, Ashby's done the first two videos so far. Anybody else here uh, checking out the Composing Club? The Dojo U? I will get, I'll grab the link here as well. 
I mean, one of the cool things I think about it is it, you know, just the idea that you know most of the composition that's happened in bagpiping happens kind of in obscurity. You know, people sort of whittling away at tunes, and then you know somebody of note will come out with a book and of tunes, and then oh, oh, you're here I'm at a pipe band medley or something. Oh, that's cool. You know, so it just sort of like sprinkles out into the world. And there's nothing formal or sort of I don't know. Um, you know, sort of I don't know what the word I'm looking for. Some, something something bigger that can actually like spread it out in a, in a more sort of uh, structured way or a formal way. You know, it's always this sort of informal thing that happens. It's been happening for a long time. You know? Yeah, you're right about that. It is largely informal, or if it is formal, like for I think for some of us, like myself, and um, take somebody like I know I've spent time with Mark Saul and you know uh, quite a ways back you know he did a course at dojo U, and you know uh for those of us for whom composing is formal it's largely like not um oh you know not available knowledge it's just something that just something that happens to you know that happens to converge on bagpipers like uh, myself and others and yeah. you know some of the folks that that i worked with when we developed music for the sfu pipe band you know it's like these are people who know how to play the piano and understand the basics of music theory, and it happens to come together. And um, yeah. well, it's, you know, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like formalizing, like you studied, you know, music in school, and there was formal sort of composition type course coursework, right? You know, sort of in the mainstream sort of Western music, there's this sort of structural thing that happens. Like people can learn how to, you know, compose or at least get in the mindset of a composer and learn the sort of principles behind you know, making music but you know it doesn't ever happen you know so and people didn't do <laughs> afterward you know and bagpipe there's nothing like that you know there's nothing that can actually push people in that direction you know? right and it's it's difficult because there's no real there's no official school of thought i think and i think that's reinforcing your point then it's like there's no um, there's no place to find an official school of thought about composing at least not at this point although my composing club is going to be a, a great place um, to get that sort of thing. There's a lot of things that I've learned about music composition that are great, but don't really apply to bagpipers. Um, and so what I'm doing in the course, largely in the composition club, is um, taking everything that I know about composing in general and composing for the bagpipe, and condensing isn't the right word, uh, but just um, but just teaching it. Cross-fertilizing, let's say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but just, you know, putting together the key information that bagpipers need in order to be creative, right? Like you don't need, you don't need to know about like intense super uh, chord modulations and key changes and um, you don't need to know all 47,000 different clefs that you can write in. You just don't need to know it. Um, and so we, you know, I've, I've been careful to put things together in a way that's specific to Piper, so it's pretty cool. Um, so we're going to have another class where we talk about some music theory stuff. Um, let's start by asking you guys out there if there's any sort of music theory-related questions you might like to bring forward. We can have a little bit of an open Q&A if you'd like to do that. And then um, I've got a couple other things I can show you guys as well, but let's start with that. I want you to know harmony. For our bagpipe opera, so you can start there maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, um, the interesting thing is, you could totally do that. You could totally um, 
compose a bagpipe opera. I don't see why not. That would, that would be really kind of an interesting thing. It would be cool. I think there are definite parallels between opera and Peabrock playing, and certainly opera performance and Peabrock performance. There's definitely some pretty big um, parallels there. Yeah. I I mean, I like the way, in terms of like opera, just in terms of just music, relating those kinds of music generally. I mean, Peabrock, once upon a time, probably, you know, sort of spoke to people in a way that they, we don't even have any inkling of what it was like, you know. Um, motifs, certain certain rhythmic patterns meant something to the people then that uh, that so when you used them, you sent a message, right? There was a clear understanding. It was a vocabulary almost that I think. I think Pebrock. Um, I think Pebrock uh, spoke to people uh, very similarly to how some of these series that come out on like Netflix and HBO speak to people nowadays. Like uh, I'm, I'm partially, partially kidding, but partially being, being, you know, serious in that, like, you know, a lot of us connect with some of these uh, huge new dramas that are coming out, like where you really invest yourself in it and um, gets kind of interesting. There are so many cool, so, so many cool, um, you know, they're not movies anymore. I think movies used to appeal to people too. It's like it's like um, it's a form of entertainment, but you're not always like, yay, entertainment. Um, yeah. Like sometimes it's uh, sometimes it uh, generates like really interesting, solemn reflection and stuff as well. Well, it's the inter um, yeah, interactions between you know certain interactions, certain types of dialogue, you know, have a certain significance in people's minds of the people watching. I mean, Shakespeare was like that too, right? That's a you know, Shakespeare is obscure now because we've lost the context where a lot of this language and the content and the situations sort of play out in real meaning. Like, so people back then knew what that stuff meant. They got the jokes, right? They, uh, they knew that it was an intense, dramatic moment when certain characters did certain things to each other. But today we sort of look at it and say, eh, he's just doing that. No, no one really cares. But, uh, you know, we've lost that sort of cultural uh, vocabulary. I don't think we have lost it. I think it's just no, transformed. It's, just it's evolved. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not lost. It's just it's just muted, you know, into something else. You know. And yeah, and there's still um, there's still like a strong desire um, for you know members of our cult culture to seek out that sort of art, that sort of art form where where you can reflect on aspects of humanity. Um, on that. Um, on that note, did you see the? Have you seen the Jinx? Has anybody here seen the Jinx? I haven't seen the Jinx. It was like soul crushingly. Uh, it was like soul crushingly awesome. Uh, in a totally not like not, and I don't mean awesome in like a happy go lucky type way. Interesting. Uh, do we, uh, anyway, uh, just on uh, just on the uh, on that wavelength there of social uh, social filmmaking. Um, okay, so we do have some actual real questions about music theory here. So, uh, Les says, do we have any idea of how popular Peabrock really was? Or was it an esoteric pastime? Well, I think it depends on how you look at it. Uh, I think Peabrock was popular uh, in the highlands of Scotland um, for a couple hundred years. 
Um, and then, you know, per capita, yeah, I, I think, I think it, was, you know, it was uh, very popular. You know, music musicians were held in pretty high esteem, you know, that back then. So, you know, say being an official musician of, you know, say a clan or something like that, or of a, a chiefdom of some kind, was a was a notable position. And the music was a way of culturally communicating different ideas, different moments, different functions, really. You know, of, you know, marking occasions just like it is today. You know, it's not so much popular as it was a sort of a, a cultural sort of norm, really, in terms of communicating all the things that needed to communicate. And now it's become sort of a you know an object you know an objectified art form you know, where we sort of you know explore it and express it as a way as a separate thing. This doesn't have its same context anymore. Yeah, it's just different. I think yeah, it's different. But uh, you know, I think for that specific culture, you know, P rock was um, definitely very important. But outside of that area, right? Outside of that area, it was nothing more than just sort of like, um, like a rain dance or something, you know. I don't think anybody, uh, I don't think anybody took it seriously. As a matter of fact, I think, um, you know, I think the the British, uh, the British probably looked on it as kind of like crazy people, primitive rain dance type thing. Uh, but then it's the same thing that happened in in the United States. And again, I'm I know I'm crushing the realities of history here, but same thing that happened in the United States. There 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 comes a popular, you know, uh, popularization of quote you know primitive forms um, that happened in every in every sort of evolving society. So what was once you know primitive and awful and terrible suddenly becomes fascinating. And in the Victorian era, um, in England, right? In the Victorian era, that's where you had the crown suddenly take a huge interest in Highland art forms and a sort of co-opting of those so, art you know, forms being, into you know, Gaelic culture, culture was a fascinating and kind of fashionable thing. You know? So, you know, ooh, like Scottish, just Absolutely. so mysterious and so exotic. You know? So it becomes yeah, and you know, uh, Queen Victoria was kind of like, uh, an inter- let's just say she was kind of an interesting lady. Like, not only did she hire Angus Mackay to uh, not she, you know, individually hire her, but not only did the crown kind of get on board with that, mm-hmm. and there was that whole era where Pibrock started to become uh, written down, and then there was appeals to the Highland Society of London for, um, you know, uh, for Pibrock to be documented. And well, you know, in, in that typical like sort of aristocratic way, everything had to be overseen by the proper people. You know? Yes, so. correct. <laughs> That's right. That's why the pinky is up on the left hand now. Um, when you play, put the pinky up. Yeah. Um, that's not actually true. That'd be really funny if that was actually true. What was that thing? No, the pinky must be up. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. If you you can tell whether or not a high, you can tell whether or not a bagpiper is genuinely from the Highlands, whether or not the pinky is always up. <laughs> Uh, but there you go. Okay, so um, good. Uh, has Pibrock changed much over time? Yeah, uh, it's changed to a huge degree. It seems a little bit, uh, from the outside perspective, Pibrock seems very set in stone and very uh, hoity-toity elitist and um, I, I think esoteric came up earlier. Um, seems really weird. I think that's largely because um, the door was kind of shut on uh, being allowed to touch Pibrock for a couple hundred years, basically. 
um, as people started to write it. And I think in, you know, when people started writing it down, I think when it became sort of a managed thing where the art form was sort of taking, you know, people taking stewardship over it, it was, a, a, you know, the attempt was made to like sort of make it conform to sort of a Western uh, music ideas, musical ideas, you know, in terms of you know, notation and, and, you know, the chord progression, things like that. And in, whereas, you know, it, what, it's unclear whether or not the musicians in the Highlands back then you know, right. knowledge of, you know, Western music structures or forms. Um, but certainly the music did conform in some way to, uh, to those ideas. But, you know, so the attempt to sort of make it fit, you know, altered it too. Um, and that's, you know, what we've had up until now. It's like, it's really, it's, it's been it's kind of like, you know, so it has. here's a question for you. Um, like, has the game of baseball changed at all over time? Like any baseball, I don't know a whole lot about baseball, I don't know much about baseball, but I do know that, of course, the game has changed a lot over time, even though, right, the rules are kind of still the same, the basics are still the same, but like the, I think the essence the of it, it changes mm -hmm. all the time. And, you know, you watch a baseball game, right? Everybody's doing the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Except for that uh, there are huge visionaries that can change the game and and I think Pebrock, I almost think of Pebrock sometimes more of like a pastime like baseball than, a, than an art form. So, you, so we're not even talking about the same thing. We're talking about, it's almost like a, it's, like a, it's almost like a language. Uh, it's almost like a communication style. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, so it'll evolve with the tastes and sort of norms of the, of the culture it finds itself in, really. Yeah, I think that... I think that um, I don't think it particularly likely, you know, that Pebrock is going to survive much longer unless, you know, unless it embraces more of the, you know, some of the essential musical realities. Which is, yeah, there has to be, there has to, there has to be um, a real license for interpretation and an encouragement of that. Encouraged, yeah, that's the other thing. It needs to be encouraged and sort of uh, and provided a, an outlet of some kind you know, for that, I think. Um, and also scholarship, right? Yeah. Stud, there's, you know, scholarship, people, scholarship itself has sort of languished for years and years. You know, everybody sort of accepted what's been told to them and no one really moves forward with it. And it's only now, recently, in the last like 20 years or so, that people have really sort of started examining it and really sort of picking it apart and thinking about its origins and all of that kind of thing. That, and I think it helps us broaden the sort of scope know where it might fit and lends itself to those you know additional interpretations you know it's, it makes it more possible because we can we have a better understanding of it you know? you know like i mean you know when you look at things like you know the the types of tunes that were played right you have gathering tunes you have laments you have all these different types of tunes that were played in different occasions you kind of just kind of blithely accept that you know we don't really think about the cultural aspects of it in terms of what would generate its origin or why it would be played you know? i mean and what the player themselves in that point, at that point, might have thought when they were playing it. Did they take license with the, with the, uh, with the rhythms and with the melody line in a way that we would never do today, you know? Those are things that I think come up when you think about it like that. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Um, Pebrook has the potential to be awesome, and I don't think it reaches that potential very often. No. <laughs> uh, for a variety of different reasons. Mm 
I'm just reading some of these other questions here. Has anyone tried doing a slide on pipes, i.e. A to A sharp as for whistles? I'm not sure what you mean. Do you mean like a physical... Yeah, like, covering the hole or something like that? Do you mean like a physical slide of some kind, or do you mean an actual finger technique? You got a whistle and a slide is really sort of all, you know, sort of you know, partially covering the hole to get a different pitch out of the, out of the note, right? Um, and the answer is, yeah, both both of those things do happen. Awesome keyboard tricks. Mm. <laughs> there are lots. Mm. Yeah, Roger, that happens all the time. Uh, and it can be notated as well. Yeah, you have to listen to, you know, sort of do that, like, uh, gosh, didn't Adam Quinn do a, do a class on slides and things like that? He has a lot of stuff. I think he did. That kind of stuff, yeah. They get a good sort of slide. I think he was teaching even cloud. Yeah, I, I can't, you know, it's, it's so interesting how long we've been doing this. And, um, of course, I remember Adam doing WWE stuff, but it's amazing how, uh, yeah, there's like a whole body of work there that Adam has that needs to be checked out for sure. Um, okay, moving on. Uh, more explanation of major versus minor. Well, uh, what is the difference between major and minor? Does anybody here know what the difference is? Sweet and sour, Siri says? <laughs> no, major and minor. It's a different kind of sauce you can get from a Chinese place. Major minor sauce? Major minor sauce. Yeah, major it's minor. delicious. John said something mysterious. John said third. What does that mean? What is the difference between major and minor? Happy and sad. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start, right? And the question is, it's like the million-dollar question. Does it actually sound happy versus sad, or are we just conditioned uh, uh, to think that way? Because that's just the way we've always associated it. It's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, people you started using different note combinations to express sadness. We'd be in a different place right now. We're just sort of conditioned. I don't know. So, yeah. <laughs> it's like if green was really called blue and blue was really called green. Like everything could be different. Um, but let's have a look at them. Um, I think that's a good place to start. I'm going to take some notes here. Difference between major and minor. Okay, uh, major is, is happy sounding. Now, why we think it's happy sounding, let's not go into that, but major is happy sounding. Minor is 
sad sounding. And I don't really have a piano here today um, to be able to demonstrate all too easily. Mm. Okay, but let's look at the, how are we gonna do this? Let me see if I have a, um, picture of a piano, hang on one second. Piano keys, is that it? Oh, no, that's not going to be it. Yeah, okay. Let me bring up a picture here, and we'll talk about the actual difference between major and minor uh, using our good friend the piano. So, um, yeah, I don't have my iPad piano with me today, unfortunately. Um, okay, so let me do this. Got my little drawing tool. Now, let's look at, um, let's look at the most famous major scale. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? What's the most famous major scale? Um, change color. Yep, the most famous major scale is a C major scale here. And um, we can start over here with middle C. And then the next note is going to be D, E, F, G, A, E, and C. And that makes a major scale that sounds like C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, right? Uh, which is the classic major happy scale, right? And then um, if we go to the most famous minor scale, which is actually the A minor scale, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, right? It's a little bit on the sad side. And the difference, what's the difference between the two scales? Well, they play different pitches, but the real difference between the two scales is the combination of different intervals that they use in order to create the scale, okay? So um, here we have from C to D, right? from C to D is what we call a tone because there are two semitones between C and D, or two semitones to get from C to D. Right? So the first step is a tone. Okay? The second step is also a tone from D to E. Now what is it from E to F? You're right about that, Les. We're talking about full steps versus half steps. But you see how from E to F, it's not actually two steps, is it? It's just one, and we call that a semitone. Okay, but then we have another tone, we have another tone, we have another tone, and then um, 
that you can't see the final C, but the last one would be a semitone. And that's what makes a major scale. Okay, now, if we back it all the way up, so what, do you remember the combination there? The combination is tone, tone, semitone, tone, 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 semitone. I'm just going to note that here. Tone, tone, semitone, tone, 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 semitone. Have you ever seen one of those t-shirts with that on it? And like only a, only a very small portion of the population knows what that means. Uh, but those are the steps, right? Or those are the interval sizes between the different steps of a C major scale. Does everybody follow that roughly? Follow what I'm saying? Okay, now, what makes different scales have a different sound to them um, has to do with different sets of intervals. So if we started on A and created the A minor scale, we have tone, semitone, tone, tone, semitone, tone, and tone. And this makes what uh, we call a natural harmonic minor scale. No, natural minor scale, I think. Did I get that right, John McCain? John McCain's my fact checker. Yeah. The natural harmonic. No, natural minor scale. A harmonic minor scale, slightly different. Are all minor scales this combination? The answer is no. Um, natural minor, and then harmonic minor, I have to look it up exactly, uh, minor scales. Wikipedia is my favorite thing, because it will always tell me what they are, yeah. Um, so, harmonic minor scale is slightly different in that it has a sharp seventh. So, um, it would actually be what you might call tone plus on the seventh uh, degree. Um, and stuff like that. And it's all just geeky stuff we don't really need to know, do we? What do we really need to know? We really need to know is whether or not it's major or minor. And um, especially because we don't have all the notes at our disposal, um, we're just kind of, we're not really going to deal with a whole lot of different stuff there. I agree with John. That's the that's the uh, music theory geek way to put it. Yeah, there's a sharp seven that leads uh, back to the root, just like a major scale. Um, that's what a harmonic minor scale is. And then you have a uh, melodic minor scale, which is actually different on the way up than it is on the way down. Um, yeah, and so there's all sorts of different types of scales. And the way that we define major scale versus minor scale versus pentatonic scale versus um, like some of the Asian whole step scales, which are kind of interesting, um, the way that you just the way that you determine or define all of these different scales, all it just has to do with different intervals between the different scale degrees. Okay. Um, and we can study those till the cows come home, or we can just have a basic understanding, which is kind of what I have. 
Um, but let's look at um, how about major versus minor chords. Um, let's look at that. What um, you know, generally speaking, how do we make chords in music? Anybody? Generally speaking, you don't have to. I'm not going to grill you for being too technical. Yep, a chord is two or more notes together, and then more, uh, more realistically, most of the time, what are we talking about? Yeah, we're talking about three notes, okay? Usually two scale degrees apart when they're in uh, root position there, okay? Let me give you some examples of um, common chords on the bagpipes. We have A, C sharp, and E. Very common chord. You could have a you could have G, uh, B, and D. Right? You see how there um, there's the bass note, then you go up two, and then you go up two more. That's the basic structure of uh, chords. What are some other ones? How about B, D, and F sharp? Uh, let's see, we actually. Um, we actually have an E minor scale as well. If you did E, G, and then you sort of wrap around back to the beginning, to the B. And you guys can hear if I play my chanter, right? Here's the A, C, and E uh, chord. Here's the next one. Right? All of these uh, notes, when played together, have a nice musical effect. Yeah, I forgot the, one of the obvious ones, too which is uh, what we call a D major scale, D, F sharp, and A, right? That sounds like this. Okay, so we have all these different chords. Now, how do we know whether these chords are major or minor chords? Well, um, let's look at the, yeah, uh, John says it's the third. Well, let's have a look at each of these chords on the keyboard, okay? And I'm gonna uh, start off by just telling you this is an A major chord. Check this out. So here's A, here's C sharp, and here's E, right? Now let's, let's count the difference uh, uh, the difference in semitones between the different parts of this chord. So from A, we've got uh, we've got A, B, C, then up to C sharp. Okay. So there's a there's a difference of four semitones there. From C sharp up to the E, we've got one. We've got C sharp, D, D sharp, E. Yep, I realized what I screwed up. I'm like, the counting doesn't seem right here. Let's go back to the, from A to C sharp. We're gonna, from the A, we go one to A sharp, two to B, three to C, four to C sharp. I feel better already. Four semitone difference, right? And then from here, we go one to D, two to D sharp, three to E, and we have three semitones. Okay, so everybody follow me so far? So from the first degree of the chord, 
or you know, the first note of the chord to the middle note, there's four semitones. And from the second note to the third note, there's three semitones. Whew. Everybody got that? Everybody following me? Or is people like totally lost? We'll do another, we'll do another major chord. Let's do the D major chord, right? It's going to be major if I go one, two, three, four. This is going to be the second note, right? Then we're going to go one, two, three. That's how you make a D major chord. Okay? Make a major chord. It's up four semitones, up three semitones. Bam, major chord. And sure enough, D, F sharp, and A are playable on the bagpipes. Now, the, the, one of the chords I wrote here was B, D, and F sharp. Look at how this one's slightly different. This is only one, two, three to the D, and then from D to F sharp is one, two, three, and four. So in this particular chord, it's three, and then four, switched. The position of the third is switched. Listen to how this one sounds. Right? Um, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree, John. I think there's, you know, I think explaining it both ways has pros and cons. Um, but can you hear how that B chord sounded sad? and chords like this, happy, and then this one's sad, right? And it all has to do with the relationship of uh, the different notes in the chord. So who asked about major versus minor? I'll forget it. I'm scrolling back up. Ah, Dan. Dan was asking, yeah. Okay, and um, so that's just sort of like a quick preview into how you tell the difference. Um, I think, um, you know, being able to go from square one all the way through is the important thing uh, to being able to see that. And it helps to have a piano available so you can hear things easily. And uh, we, we have all of that going on in our... Um, so you know, in the sort of context of bagpipe music, is it safe to say that um, you know, recognizing that is would be important for what? Like say writing harmonies, you wouldn't necessarily write minor harmonies in tune that's got major chords first and, and vice versa, right? You'd want to recognize what you're dealing with first. And then if you want to take it further, you would need to at least know the difference, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, major versus minor for bagpipers is not that important. Uh, because, and the reason why, uh, is because we only have one scale to work with. We only have nine notes, and they're finite, and, and you can't really change them. Like, we can't play an, I mean, we can, uh, sort of, uh, but we can't, we don't really have an F natural. So if we wanted to play a D minor chord, we don't really have the ability to do that. It's not going to happen. Yeah, unless, right? unless uh, it sort of hits, it, hits it on the head right there, like when you can recognize these things, you kind of know what kind of patterns you're dealing with, you know, what notes going to yeah. follow when you're dealing with the scale 
in a certain part of the tune, you know, when it's, you know, in, in a certain form, like a march or a, a reel or something like that, you know. Right, exactly. I think, you know, and I think the interesting thing is to just observe where we are as pipers. So major versus minor, it's not as important as um, what chord um, is this current tune utilizing right now. That's more important. It's less important. I mean, it's useful to know whether or not it's major or minor, for sure. Uh, but it's, it's, that's less important than being able to say, oh, okay, well, this... This phrase is clearly playing a, you know, in the D major chord. Oh, and maybe it switches to A major, you know, for the last couple of beats. Yeah, happy versus sad doesn't really make sense. Um, certainly not from an a not from a an objective standpoint, right? We need to know like what the nuts and bolts are. Yeah, it's more important when you're dealing with sort of color or flavor. You know, what kind of sort of feeling in the tune you're sort of getting, you know, depending on what kind of tune it is, you know. Yeah, Some exactly. of these kinds of no progressions are going to be, say, more exciting or less exciting, depending, you know, how they're used. Right. If you half hole on E, you could get an F natural. It would be so, it would be actually half holing on the F. You could get something resembling an F natural. But remember, that's not a technique that's overly possible to control. So it's not something we're going to be able to compose with. There's some funny fingerings that you can do to come close to some of these other notes, mm -hmm. like C natural and F natural, but they're not controllable. They're not tunable. Um, they're not reliable. So aside from just messing around with them at the Cayley, they're not really composable. Unless you actually alter the tuning of a note with tape, um, and then you can do that. I've done that a few times. Or what the, the bad guys do when they put a little thing in the hole. Right. That's still, that's still imprecise, really. Mm -hmm. That's right. It's like you always are going to need that fine tunability. Um, which is which is why you got to be careful. And it's either one or the other, right? You can put the thing in the hole, but unless you have a long period where you can stop playing, you're not going to be able to change back to the other thing. So, um, but it does get it does get kind of interesting, right? Um, it does get kind of interesting if you want it to. And certainly there's been a lot of players who've explored those kinds of things, you know, especially these days. I think a lot of, a lot of pipers and some of the folk bands are really sort of playing around with these ideas and sort of really exploring what the Chandler scale is capable of, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, you know, there are things, depending on how far down the rabbit hole you want to go, uh, there's always more and more interesting things to think about and interesting possibilities. Uh, for example, I did a recording with a guy named Michael O'Neill from Vancouver. I, I did, um, I recorded some of his bagpipe compositions. And one of the pieces played in G the whole time. And we actually had drone extenders that tuned our drone to G. Um, and that's a whole new compositional space there. And a whole new set of logistics. And it was awkward and hard to play at first. 
because we're not used to playing in that scale, in that key, and thinking in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Remember on 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 the whistle, half holding is a little bit more realistic because you can also vary your blowing and your dynamics in order to make that um, in order to make that fit. Um, and you can also use tacit, right? Um, and other bending techniques. On the bagpipes, you have one pressure that you're playing, you have one volume, and there's not the ability to start and stop as well. So I agree, Roger, it's fun to experiment uh, with different slides and half holing and cool stuff like that. Um, and if you don't really care about the tuning, um, you can do interesting stuff as well, uh, but it's very challenging. All depends what you're going for. You can also do these things. You know, uh, you can do uh, where you can do tambourel. You can do tambourel color um, by you know moving fingers underneath the note. You'll see that'll happen a lot. That happens a lot in um, you know Kaylee Kaylee style playing and stuff like that. And you can notate that if you want to. You can you can notate like a tambourine trill. I've done that a few times. For sure. Yeah, All right. It's not been encouraged. Uh, any final questions before we wrap it up here? It's like a, you know, you do that kind of stuff, you get we pushed. Vin doesn't. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah. You strike me as a cold-blooded traditionalist. <laughs> Classicist, I, I prefer the term classicist. Oh, oh, right. Keep that pinky up. Keep my pinky up. I play with my pinky All right. So any last... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Okay, last questions here uh, before wrapping it up, if there are any. Yeah. You know why you're Roger Dayton Dayton, don't you? It's because somewhere along the line... On the Dojo U website, when it asked for your first name, you didn't follow the directions, and you put in your whole name. So now it thinks your first name is Roger Dainton, and your last name is Dainton. But yeah, I can fix that for you. Happens all the time. This is cool. We're where could you, what do you think, what would be a good, as we wrap it up, where would be a good place to go, aside from sort of joining your composers club, um, that people could learn more about this stuff from a sort of basic level? Are there things, are resources out there that you could sort of, people could poke around on and explore and get more information? Well, it's a good question. It's a good question, and, and for me, there are very few, if any, resources for bagpipers, you know, that, that have, that specifically consider the bagpipes. But yeah, I mean, Wikipedia is an amazing music theory resource, especially for me. Like, I learned all this stuff. I used it. I've forgotten some of it. Sometimes I have things I remember, like, it's something about that, but I don't remember exactly what it is. So I just go to Wikipedia. It's awesome. Or Google, um, which is pretty cool. And then there are lots of other free or paid music theory courses available on the Internet, um, but they're usually, um, they're usually very piano-centric. And they teach things that pipers either don't need to know or need to think about in a slightly different way. 
And I think that's where I, found, I thought that it was really important to do a composition course. There's so few resources for bagpipers to learn this stuff from their point of view. Yeah. Even so. from a basic standpoint, you know, like, I mean, take it for granted that we all kind of know what all those little letters mean on keys. <laughs> but, you know, you know, it's, and when you're learning bagpipes, it's, it can get be overlooked sometimes. I think people just sort of throw it at you and expect you to sort of absorb it or something uh, without really delving into it specifically, you know, like learning those kinds of basic things that a lot of times you learn in school, sometimes maybe not. Um, you might have, if you had uh, played an instrument in grammar school or something like that, you would learn what a half note is. <laughs> but it's, you know, you can never take it for granted that people automatically know this stuff you know, at a basic level. You know. Yeah. Yep, there's lots of good books. Looks like Steve's got one here. Um, I know that uh, it's a good one. We sell uh, a book called Is It Supposed to Sound Like That? Which is kind of a cool introductory book uh, for all things bagpiping. <laughs> yeah, is it supposed to sound like that? <laughs> and you can check that out. And uh, meanwhile, um, we'll see. maybe we'll see more of you in the Composition Club in this upcoming week. And uh, why don't we call it in there? We'll see everybody next week on another exciting episode of Dojo Universe. Very well. Have a good day, all. You're welcome, everybody. We'll see you later. <laughs>